0: you <laughs> So that's R.E.M. Michael Stutt, a great, great band, Losing My Religion. So the Barna Group recently completed a comprehensive study showing the startling number of Christian youth abandoning church and Christianity. In this new comprehensive five-year study by the Barna Group of young adults, age 18 to 29, who were current or former churchgoers, it was discovered that almost three out of five young Christians, 59%, Leave the church life either permanently or for an extended period of time after 15. And I think it has to do with salt. Oh, it's working again. Good. I think it has to do with salt or more precisely with this parabolic extended metaphor of salt that Christ spoke. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Have you ever thought about that image? honestly just thought about it for a while. We hear it a lot, don't we, about the salt and saltiness as Christians. But have you thought about it, it's brilliant. This is almost two pounds of salt, cost me 89 cents, less than a buck, less than a buck. And in the average household kitchen, this will last an entire year. It's gonna turn a 20-cent egg into an amazing egg salad that in most diners people will pay $6.99 for a sandwich or maybe more. It, likewise, you'll take an ordinary can of tuna that costs a buck and turn it into a fabulous lunch that people will pay a lot of money for. <laughs> popcorn is horrible without salt. <laughs> and it's so good with salt that even when you go to the movies and they charge you nine bucks for two cents worth of popcorn, you still pay it because it's so good. <laughs> you can buy Tenderloin for $17.99 a pound, it won't even taste as good as a McDonald's burger without salt, and on and on for over a year. that would otherwise be ordinary becomes wonderful because of salt. That costs less than a buck. Why does it cost less than a buck? Because if it's not going on anything, it's worthless. You don't eat it by itself, right? They say a spoonful of sugar will help the medicine go down, but a spoonful of salt will probably make it come back up. (laughs) It's not worth much. And that's even when it's salty. But when it loses its saltiness, it becomes worthless, Jesus says not fit for even a manure pile. Think about that. It gets thrown out. And it seems our religion has become maybe this tasteless salt that's being thrown out, cast aside at an alarming place. So the question is, what have we done that we are being thrown out? What have we done? I think there are two things which perpetuate each other in this sad dance into irrelevance, into salt that doesn't taste like salt. And I wanna be clear here. Whenever I start in my teaching time criticizing Christianity, it's because it's my faith. And I'm not doing this to judge other forms of Christianity. I'm not doing it to judge other branches of Christianity. I'm certainly not doing it to judge individual churches within Christianity. It is self-reflection. It's my religion. It's our religion. It's our church. Self-reflection, not for the purpose of judging others and making us feel better about ourselves, but for the purpose of being honest about ourselves. What's wrong with us? That's important. Self-reflection is something that we don't do much anymore. Because in America, everyone's wonderful and everyone's great. And we shouldn't have to look at what's wrong with us. No, self-reflection is the beginning of getting better. So please understand that in a, a teaching like today, where I'm about to... Talk about what I think has gone wrong. I'm looking at my own religion, our own church, Christianity that is my faith that I love so much. So, I think the first thing that has happened to make salt become tasteless, and according to Jesus, worthless, is we have set ourselves up against the very world we are supposed to be seizing. We have become enemies with the very people Jesus was friends with. I don't know how and why this has happened. My suspicion is it started when we compromised and and, and got in bed with empire back in 300 AD. But I'm sure it's also much more nuanced and complex with that as we go forward. But regardless, we have done it. We have established ourselves as the enemy of sinners. Yet Jesus was the friend of sinners. There's this beautiful moment in the Jesus story when this prostitute comes to Jesus, washes his feet with her tears. We've explored the story at Canaan before. It's a magnificent story. But just for this morning, have you ever noticed how the story begins? Verse 37 in Luke 7. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there. She learned Jesus was in town and went there. Now, picture this. Jesus shows up in that town... And he and his group of merry people following him are carrying signs. And on one side of that sign it says prostitution is an abomination. And on the other side of those signs it says prostitutes are going to hell. And then where he sets up camp to give his teaching, he gets the tent going. And right when you walk into the tent there's tables that you can sign a proposal That will outlaw prostitution. And then when Jesus starts teaching, all he does is talk about how horrible prostitution is, and prostitutes are going to hell. Does this woman go and find him? Like honest, does this woman go and find him? remarkable scene of redemption ever happened? How did we get here? If salt has become tasteless, it's worthless. Listen to what some of the kids who were throwing out the church gave as their reasoning. They view churches as judgmental, overprotective, exclusive, and unfriendly towards doubters. They also consider congregations antagonistic to science and say their Christian experience has been shallow. One in four 18 to 29-year-olds said, Christians demonize everything outside the church. Oh, I'm probably on another slide here, right? (laughs) Yep. One in six Christians says, we have made mistakes and feel judged in church because of them. So, what is the gospel we are sharing with the world? What is the good news? Gospel means good news. It doesn't mean bad news. It just means good news. Gospel is not unique to Christianity. The Roman emperor used gospel long before Jesus did that was part of Jesus' way. He was, he was always doing that sarcasm thing. It just means good news. But I, I think the Christian gospel sometimes isn't good news at all. It's supposed to be salty, making the world more appetizing. Jesus sprinkled this woman's world with a seasoning of grace, mercy, love, kindness. Kindness is kindness a word right now that we would use to describe our culture. Kindness. Even more. Do you ever hear kindness associated with Christian culture a lot anymore? Kindness. And yet, St. Paul, not me, St. Paul said, the kindness of God leads to repentance. God's kindness is what draws people to him. And to this beautiful story of forgiveness and grace and mercy... We have replaced kindness with judgment, and we have become salt that sadly has lost its season. And the second thing I think that has happened, keeping with this metaphor, is we've hoarded the salt. Right? We've hoarded it. So instead of using it to season the world around us as we're meant to, we keep it to ourselves. And now it's all wheat. It's all wheat. But salt is not meant to be eaten alone. So here's the thing. When our theology and doctrines and creeds become an end in themselves, they're really nothing more than a plate of salt that no one wants. Again, from the Barna study. One in three said church is irrelevant. One in three Theology and doctrines and creeds, at their very best, were given to us by God to help us learn to love God more and to love others more. That's the purpose of doctrines and theology and creeds. To love God more and to love others more. If they're not doing that, then they're irrelevant. Period. Full stop. End of story. And throughout my life, I have taught doctrines and creeds and theology as an end in themselves, and I am ashamed. If it's not helping people love God more and love others more, then what's the point of that doctrine? What's the point of using it? Hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying doctrine's bad. I'm not saying theology's bad. I'm not saying creeds are bad. But when they're misused as an end in themselves, not helping us get closer to God and close to others than I think they're around. And worse, they establish this us-them paradigm of exclusivity that is not at all a paradigm of the kingdom of God, as we have been discovering this summer in our series on this great parable that we've been looking at. John Eldridge writes it this way. I like how he puts it. For above all else, the Christian life is an affair of the heart, It cannot be lived primarily as a set of principles or ethics. It cannot be managed with steps and programs. It cannot be lived exclusively as a moral code leading to righteousness. The truth of the gospel is intended to free us to love God and others with our whole hearts. When we ignore this heart aspect of our faith and try to live out our religion solely as correct doctrine or ethics, our passion is crippled or perverted, and the divorce of our soul from the heart purposes of God toward us is salt that has become useless. So, let's consider some other difficult statements Jesus made at the end of this parable. Because I think they provide a perfect example of how we can take a doctrine or a theology or a, a, a scripture passage and twist it and make salt taste. Alright? But first, I want to give an illustration. Oh, here's here's these difficult... Here's the difficult statements we're going to look at. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. In order does not carry the cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Okay, that's what we're going to look at. Those are difficult statements, but first an illustration. I'm mad about my flat. So we were all born, most of us here, born and raised in America and in our culture and so it is understandable and perfectly reasonable that when you hear me say that, you think i got a flat tire in my car and I'm angry about it and you would be perfectly right to think that. However, if we were born in Great Britain and we were sitting together now in Great Britain and I said this, you would think I love my apartment. Context. It's ginormous. I got on the phone with you today said, I'm mad about my flat. You'd think one thing if I call my uncle in Scotland. He'd think another thing. And the scriptures were written thousands of years ago. In another culture, in another time, by an entire group of people that were not influenced by the Greeks the way we are influenced by the Greeks. And you know if you've been coming to Canaan for any amount of time, we take cult- context of scripture very, very seriously. So, We find these difficult statements smack in between two of the most powerful parables Jesus ever told, revealing that at the heart of God is grace. That in the kingdom of God, the only economy, the only economy, the only currency there is, is grace. And one can only receive grace, not buy it, earn it, or deserve it. That's where we find these difficult parables. Not by themselves in a vacuum. In the context between the Great Banquet, which we have explored for four weeks, and the parable of lost sons. So, immediately, I suggest we have to dismiss any interpretation of these difficult statements that suggest these are transactions with God. That if we do these things, we will be rewarded with entrance into the kingdom, or if we do them, we will receive deeper blessings in the kingdom. We cannot transact with God. We cannot. The kingdom does come with a massive price, but the one doing the buying is God. That is enormous cost. Grace is not cheap. So then, why does Jesus use such high-cost imagery then to explain the economy of God? Well, first, I think it's a nod to the fact that grace costs God everything. But second and more importantly, Jesus knows us. And he is often, often, often using our own thinking against us. It's, it's a, you hear me say this all the time. If you have lost your passion for reading scripture, get another translation and start reading it again. Especially the Gospels. It is brilliant stuff. And this is Jesus does this over and over and over again. Oh, as we saw in this great banquet parable. Remember the guy said, Yes, may we eat together in the kingdom of God. And Jesus like... Really? Let me tell you about the kingdom of God and he tells us parable. He knows us so well so he uses our thinking against us. So, he knows that we humans insist on being winners. We insist on being winners. We insist on it. We insist on earning our way. This is from ancient times. Adam and Eve insisted that they needed to hide from God and cover themselves. Nope, God never said anything about that. And oh, might our lives would be so different if they had just begged for grace and mercy? But that's another story. Tower of Babel. Great parable about humanity insisting on being winners and earning our way. And just think about it. This is what we're taught. Every one of us growing up in America has been taught we have to be winners. We have to earn our way. Right? So Jesus says, you know what? You're going to find the economy of God to be way too expensive because from our perspective, it is expensive. From our perspective, not God's, it costs us everything. See, Jesus was not lying. These difficult statements and challenging parables about counting the cost are not spoken mirrors. These are the hard facts about the kingdom. This is the gospel. The free party will cost us everything. And everyone's saying, but David, you just said the salt is. T-. Yes, but it's from our perspective. See? It's not a payment. It's not what this is. These difficult statements are not payments. But because we love our lives so much, we're going to think of them as one. The party is free. The cross of Jesus Christ establishes this fact without any qualifications. God did everything. We are forgiven. Grace rules the kingdom. The challenge is grace must be humbly received. And God knows that only those with absolutely nothing left to hold on to are most willing to receive grace. Everyone else is constantly fighting to hold on to all the things that keep us from receiving grace. I do this all the time. So Jesus forcefully and passionately says, let go. Let go and receive the kingdom that is yours for free. So there's this ancient parable, this ancient myth that, uh, that I'm sure all of you have heard. It, uh, what do they call motivational speakers? Motivational speakers use this one all the time. But the thing is, they quote it sort of like it's actually true. I can't find that it's true anywhere. There's some, there's some old old documentary footage about. Some people in Africa catching a baboon in an anthill this way, but if you watch that film closely, I'm pretty sure the baboon is a pet. Um, But anyway, still, it's the the idea, the parable great, whether it's real or not. So they claim, there's how it starts out is there's these monkeys in Borneo, Borneo, and they capture them by hollowing out a coconut, and then they put food inside the coconut, and they tie the coconut to a tree, and the monkey comes along, there's food in there, and you can slip your hand in, but then he grabs the, the food, and he can't get his fist out, and so they just walk up and they take him because he won't let go of the food, right? It's brilliant parable. I don't, I don't think it works anywhere, but it's a brilliant parable. <laughs> this is this. Let go and have what you want. But if you won't let go, how can you have what you want? And this is where the seasoning gets turned up and done. I wanted to have cook in here so I could say "bam," like a hammer right now. But this is also why I call God the Mad habit because this is so wonderfully ludicrous. You have to laugh, and laughter is good news. This is this is the brilliance of the God that we worship. This is why I'm a Christian, because no one's writing this stuff. This has to be divine. Grace is so crazy. In the same way, those of you. Do not give up everything you have. Some translations, entire substance cannot be my disciples. So you ready? His entire substance, that's being dead. So here it is. This is is how wonderful Jesus is. The one life, the one life and all that is in it that we have. The one life that we have that Jesus says we have to give up so we can be empty enough to receive his grace. We're going to give it up anyway. Every single one of us sitting right here is going to die someday. And all you've worked for, all we've worked for, our possessions, our family relationships, everything, we're losing. It's going away. I'm sorry, yes, I'm I'm sorry if that's news to you, but when you die, yes, some people speak nicely of you for a while and then they'll just forget you. (laughs) And it's true. Do any of you spend any of your time thinking about great-grandparents? And if you do, great great, great grand, no. You don't even probably know who they were. I'm sorry, this is the way of humanity. Everything that is important to you is going away. Everything. So it's beautiful. So the cost of the kingdom is exactly what we have to pay one day anyway. But it's not a payment. That's Remember? But Jesus is using our language, our perspective. It's fabulous. Pay now and get everything, or pay later and get nothing. But we have to pay anyway. So why not now? This is the best deal in town. This is seasoning. This is turning our popcorn wonderful. And our egg salad fabulous. See how great this is? God's like, hey, I got the best deal in town. Just give it up. Which you're going to do anyway. So give it up. It's magnificent, it gets better. When we let go, we discover the only thing we were really holding on to anyway is the illusion that we are in control. That we're winners. It's a massive illusion. Massive, I'm sorry. I know some of you are highly successful. My good friend Gary's here, he's a professor at Holy Cross. My good friend Siraj is here. He's a wonderful, one of the best doctors out there. And on and on I could go through the room, sorry. It's an illusion. You're in control. Siraj, <laughs> have people ever died on you on the operating table? There it is. and Anesthesiologist. Supposed to be in control of keeping us alive. wasn't his fault they died. We're not in control. It's an illusion. And that illusion is what keeps us running after everything else except Jesus Christ. And he's the only one that says, hey, it's an illusion. You're not in control. So see... So this statement that everyone hates, and oh, yes, the salt of the earth, it's a great season. This one that everybody hates, everybody hates this one. And I, when you listen to Christians trying to talk themselves out of this paper bag, it's classic. No, nope. if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even in their own life, such a person cannot be my disciples. Here's, here's what's so wonderful about them. He says to let go of our families, not because he wants them gone, but because he knows if we would let go of our need to control others, relationships will heal and love will win. Stop controlling each other. Just let it go. He knows when we stop judging a form of control, I was just judging my mother this week people I was with were just looking at me like she's 80 years old David what are you talking about I'm like oh yes right (laughs) because I want to control her she's 80 she lives in Idaho and I'm trying to control my mother okay I have issues (laughs) maybe I should listen to Jesus but he knows when we stop judging we start forgiving which is why I think a lot of us don't stop judging because then we don't have to forgive as long as they're bad they're them them them, we don't have to forgive. He knows when we give up our selfish desires, we will live in the humility of needing grace. So, and believe me, all of our issues stem around those most intimate relationships, don't they? Dave and I talk about it all the time. Our biggest nightmare, which is every parent's biggest nightmare, something happening to our kids, they can just suck you into a dark vortex. And our wonderful, wonderful friends who are living that nightmare. But, but, if we let God be in control, even when we lose loved ones here, we know they're fine. Resurrection. God's in control. And it's better that he's As long as we imagine ourselves winners, we don't realize how much grace we really need. We don't. But to be losers, to have nothing, is to receive everything. He knows when we have nothing, we will live lives of true thankfulness. And boy, reading scripture, kingdom living is thankful living. That is salt seasoning our lives. But it gets better still. You ready for this? This is maybe the best part of this whole difficult, challenging statements that Jesus made. To understand that to have nothing is to be able to receive the kingdom of God, is to recognize that when we suffer, when we suffer, whether it's physical suffering, emotional suffering, situational suffering, relational suffering, and in this world suffering is always happening to us. We can go around the room right now and talk about how we're suffering, and I'm sure everyone is, except maybe Lainey, but Lainey's not here right now. We have the opportunity to participate in our suffering fully as a part of this process. That's what's so wonderful about this. You see, suffering is carrying a cross. That, how else can you explain suffering? It's a cross, right? Suffering's horrible, and we all have our own suffering. But when we understand what Jesus is getting at, we see it as an opportunity. To lay down our lives instead of fighting to hold on to them. Suffering is a part of letting go so we can receive grace. We're all going to suffer anyway. We're all suffering right now, I'm sure. So why not let it be part of this amazing process instead of one more thing we fight against and try to control? Suffering brings us into the kingdom. If we allow it to. Because it drives us to our knees begging for grace and mercy. It's beautiful. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. This is the exact same thing he said on the mountain. There he said it more positive. But no one really listened. Because everyone's like, well I'm not poor in spirit. I don't want to be poor in spirit. Well, then he comes around and says, well, here's the reality. You're all poor in spirit because you all suffer. And you fight that. But if you were just poor in spirit, you'd beg for mercy. And then, now we're in the kingdom. Now the gospel starts doing its work and changing our lives. And we find joy in the midst of it. Karen Hicks has one of the most amazing smiles I know while she carries this suffering of of, of, of a grandson that died. That's seasoning. That's the gospel. That is the salt of the earth. The very evils of this world become, if we can see it, the very process by which we can be humbled enough to receive God himself and share his story with the world around us. We can be salt. That's tasteful. There's not a better story, you guys. Th- this is the only... St- uh, this is the story. As far as I'm concerned, there's not a better story. Oh, pieces of it are told here and there. <clears throat> I lived in India for years. I was running into people that... Hindus and Buddhists and, and whatnot. That God bless them. They told pieces of this story beautifully. And whenever they tell it, it's, it's a beautiful story. I just think it culminates in this death of God. That's why I'm a Christian. God died. And it's beautiful. That death is life. The gospel is the salt of the earth. When we share another gospel, please, one more warning for all of us, because we can all use it. We can all use self-inspection. While we might sit here and claim, oh, David, I believe this. I love this. But if you're like me, you don't live it all the time. And you don't teach the gospel all the time that you claim to believe, if you're like me anyway. So here's this warning. When we share another gospel, one in which people have to transact with God at any level, where moral achievements or doctrinal correctness or theological understanding or belonging to the right group or any other human achievement is the way of salvation and the way of blessings, or a gospel in which only some are invited, Ugh. we are sharing bad news. We are. Don't do it. Forgive those you live with. Have mercy and grace to the world around you. And divorce yourself from the horrible culture of us that is rampant in our society right now. Hold your political beliefs, that's fine. Hold your theological beliefs, that's fine. But don't hate others that don't hold your beliefs. Don't. Extend love, extend grace. Be soft. Be the salt of the earth. Jesus shared good news, as my favorite theologian Capon said. We are raised and restored not because we are thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent, but because we are dead, and our life is hid with Christ in God. Because that is Jesus has this absolute thing about raising the dead. <laughs> Why do we want to be alive? It's a lie. Let's share this story. Let's live this story. Let's be salt. That is salty. Maybe, maybe people will stop losing everything, including us. We're going to listen to this song now. I think that captures perfectly the people we need to be to really understand this beautiful gospel.